0: I'm Maura aarons and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Money and success are two themes we talk a lot about on this show. That's because money and success are two of the most complicated, laden themes in our lives, specifically how closely they can both be tied to anxiety, whether that's because of our relationship with money or success is tied to things we experienced as children, bad past work experiences, or traumatic events. We have stories around what money and success mean. For a lot of us, fear and anxiety around money and career can be companions in our life, And it's something today's guest knows a lot about. Farnoosh Chorabi is a veteran journalist and personal finance expert who hosts the podcast So Money. She has a new book out called "A Healthy State of Panic: Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life." And when I read it, I poured over it at an airport waiting for a delayed flight. I immediately got the sense we're kindred spirits. Farnoosh joined me to talk about money, anxiety, success, and more during a recent LinkedIn Live, and I want to share it here as well. We even take some listener questions. And just as a heads up, come watch my LinkedIn Lives, check out my LinkedIn page, and I post when I host my Lives. I'm going to start hosting them every week soon. Here's my conversation with Farnoosh. So one of the things that I thought was really resonant in your book was your childhood Mm -hmm. and how your childhood relationship with anticipatory anxiety and worry and even hypervigilance sounds like a big piece of, of your life and something that you think about, as we all do. And you tell a story when you're a little girl and And you say, surviving was single-handedly my job. Mm -hmm. I was the child of divorced parents who would shuttle me and my sister back and forth and drop us off in various scary spots in the tri-state area, including like Grand Central Station in the 80s, while we had to wait for another parent, one of whom was always late, to show up. And when you wrote that surviving was single-handedly my job, I got back to that feeling of me as a 10 year old with my little sister in the middle of the city thinking, survival and protecting my sister is my job.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that marks who you are as an adult.
1: Yes, it's sobering. And I don't want every child to have to feel that, but it is our stories. And I have spent nine years hosting a podcast called so money and every time a guest comes on the show they have been so generous in talking about their moments in often their childhoods that were pivotal and have become important pieces of fabric in their lives today as adults and this book for me in some ways was my payback you know my offering finally turning the table and saying you know what were these moments in my personal life that seemed to have contributed so much to the person that i became it's not inconsequential and yeah i was a terrified kid i was called tarsu which in farsi my parents are iranian immigrants means scaredy cat or scared one and and it was usually said mockingly but as i say in that story like I look back on that terrified little girl and the vigilance that she had. And sometimes it was very irrational and I was only five. So like, give me some grace. I would, you know, be afraid of getting kidnapped. And so I would run away from a potential stranger, but (laughs) almost get hit by a car. (laughs) My fear was blinding to me back then. But I think that the thing that I took with me from my childhood was that, yes, I, I have to be my biggest advocate when fear shows up, it is signaling to me something that i need to protect and now when fear arrives i don't use it blindly i try to use it very constructively and with eyes wide open
0: do you have a little self-talk or dialogue you have when you realize you write for example that whenever you see a strange car across the street from your house you think it's someone bad do you have a little bit of dialogue that's like you know what Let's chill out a little bit. Like, how do you handle your fear as a grown up when you know it's lying or being irrational?
1: Yeah, like when I see a person outside my house taking photographs and I think he is going to home invade tomorrow (laughs) and he is getting my routines down and he was a real estate appraiser, Maura, okay. And I think (laughs) I have to catch myself in these these irrational moments. And what helps me a lot is just taking a minute and first, maybe recognizing that I am my mother. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> that this fear, I've inherited it, this particular fear of this, this extreme skepticism is is something that is kind of like in my DNA and I don't need to always lean into that. And the other thing I do is I research. So when that car, <laughs> was parked outside my house I you know I also like have to use some logic I'm like would a home invader reveal himself in broad daylight with his license plates you know like he's probably not up to trouble and when I googled it (laughs) why is the man outside my house taking photographs other people had this fear Right. right people are like this happens and they're like oh it's a home appraiser
0: Right, because it hits at something that's vulnerable for all of us, which yeah. is our home, our, our well-being, the people we love live there. At the same time, though, I, I cheer you on because you say that actually fear gets a lot of bad PR and you learn from your fear. And when you listen to your fear, actually your world can open up, not close.
1: But the word fearless rolls off the tongue a lot more than the word fearful. We don't want to even admit that word exists. We, to your point, have a very unhealthy relationship and toxic relationship with fear where we just think it's like the devil. We think it's evil. We think that if we have it, then that says something bad about us. I don't know when this campaign started, but I traced it back to at least FDR during the Great Depression when he announced to... The country during the Great Depression at his inauguration, that you have nothing to fear but fear itself. I thought, isn't that a privilege? Isn't that a luxury to, in a global recession, to say to people, don't worry, be happy? I think that's disingenuous. And I think that if you are afraid because you don't have a job and you are worried about putting food on the table, that is a real fear. And the opportunity is to say, okay, how can I use this fear to fuel me to go and make a plan, go outside my comfort zone, think strategically, the way I've been doing things hasn't been working, let's try something new, let's finally take that risk because I have this fear and I have to, I gotta work through it and I have to find a way to be constructive with it because otherwise it's still gonna hang out with you. you have to find a way to make that relationship work. Fear is helpful, but it doesn't come with a plan. Mm -mm. You know, you're the one that has to sort of parse that out. But that is an opportunity that we often don't take because I think our culture is very anti-fear. And I think that that message has often been told through the lens of like, the privileged few. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't think that as a woman, the daughter of immigrants who works in a male-dominated industry, that I can just be fearless. Because what does that mean? That means that I don't have to assess risk, that I can just go do the thing and deal with the consequences later. I can't afford that. I don't want to afford that. And I think that's okay.
0: Right. And you're not saying deny Your fear. You're not saying, you know, like I always joke about anxiety, you know, most of us will do anything to not feel our anxiety, right? We have all our greatest hits to avoid the uncomfortable feelings, but you encourage us to feel those uncomfortable feelings and to make a plan.
1: Yeah. It's uh, whether you're feeling the fear of uncertainty, the fear of failure. I go through nine different fears throughout the book, the ones that I think we all can relate to that are universal and that aren't kidding around. Yeah. You know, it's not like the fear of heights or the fear of elevators or like, I have a fear of ingesting cilantro, like, you know, those are everyday fears. Uh, There are other sort of visceral fears that show up at high stakes moments, like fear of failure and fear of money and those are the ones that i wanted to dive into in the book and in each moment and i think it's important to sort of be very specific about what is the fear that you're feeling it's not just fear it's a fear of what Mm -hmm. it's a fear of failure rejection uncertainty fomo when we can get to a more distilled place i think we can then understand what are the tools to use now how to actually leverage this fear and in every chapter i provide Kind of a self-inquiry that i recommend when these specific fears show up so for example with the fear of failure the self-inquiry is like is my definition of success accurate is it really what i want another question you can ask the fear is am i being sort of set up for failure because i'm not in an environment that is supporting me and that's scary and there is validity in that fear because it's telling you you need to go find a community that will support you, that will be supportive, because that's what you wanna protect. When you fear failure, you wanna support, you wanna protect your feeling of achievement, success, support, acceptance sometimes. And so when we know what it is that is at stake, because we've identified the specific fear that we're feeling, then we can very quickly and healthily come up with a plan. And sometimes the plan is, I mean, again, it depends on the fear, but it could be like finding a new job. Right. (laughs) It could mean getting out of a relationship. It could mean starting that business. It could mean asking for more money. It could mean finally addressing your finances. These are all places where we want to be. And sometimes, surprisingly, fear is the ticket to get there.
0: One of the inquiries that you posed that I found really resonant for me is, am I running too fast to avoid this fear? Yeah, I think a lot of us oh. do that. I know that anxious achievers do that. You know, as long as we keep going and we keep producing and we keep achieving, we're not going to feel the fear. The fear is not going to come get us.
1: No, yeah, the fear is faster
0: than you. <laughs> it's
1: it it keep- faster. So what's, <laughs> it's what's faster than you? know.
0: What's your recommendation there, or a personal experience of when you realized, gosh, I'm running so fast, I just have to stop and look this fear in the face. That's
1: it. You don't run. You. Take a beat, you listen, you stare it in the face, you examine it. And by that, you know, I mean, you examine yourself. You know, fear is just a tool to turn us more inward, and to identify who we are, what our values are. And I think if there's one takeaway from this book that I want everyone to have that I think is accessible to all of us is that when fear shows up and fear shows up in all of us, to not see it as an excuse to run, to hide, to stop, to turn away, but as an opportunity to use it for all that it's there to be used for, to be a catalyst, to go and do something that you know deep down is going to make you happier. You know, come for the advice, but stay for the stories.
0: (laughs) Well, I wanna talk about money. You're obviously best known as a money and personal finance expert. You have an interview in the book with the amazing Christina Wallace, who's been on The Anxious Achiever a couple times, and Christina and you talk about the fear to use money as the powerful tool it is, Mm -hmm. and the many, many roots of that. And you said this. This is something I think about. For many years, you thought that being a wealthy woman would come at too great a cost to you, and you were scared to do it. Can you talk about that? I feel like that is a prevalent fear that a lot of mostly women I know have.
1: Yeah, you don't often hear men going, "Oh, I don't know if I want to be rich. Exactly. I think that that has been a destination (laughs) that more men have been encouraged to pursue, and we see more men pursuing it and achieving it. And You know, Forget rich, how about just like financially secure? That also feels very unattainable for women because again, it hasn't been something that we have been told we can do, that we should do, that it is our birthright. And so getting there again with the lack of education and the lack of support is frightening.
0: But even more, we are told if we become too successful, people won't love us. We are literally told that.
1: Yeah, we are greedy. It's not virtuous. It's not virtuous. It's not a virtuous pursuit by any stretch. Right, so there's all these um, horrible, inaccurate messages that we get. I bought into it. I was a woman who, even as she was a personal finance author and expert and journalist and wrote a book about female breadwinners and wasn't hiding behind the fact that she had financial independence, I wanted this for everybody. I was doing well financially and I just felt like I didn't want to push the envelope more. I saw a lot of other people in my world, in my career world, in my space, making a lot of money, more than me, by leveraging digital products, as you know, courses, mm-hmm. workshops, things like that. And I was like, I wasn't doing that. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I'm leaving money on the table. I also saw the amount of work that that took. And I didn't want to, in the pursuit of making more money, sacrifice my time my relationships and yes i was worried about how it's going to look right like this woman who seemingly has it all now she wants more okay now she's just being greedy yeah. now she's just got her priorities mixed up and i was worried more about getting this criticism from truthfully like family and mm-hmm. people who knew me best who all the while they're supporting me but i think because they also were attached to these fears right around money like this is a Passed down thing. This is a generational crisis that we have around our relationship with money. And my breakthrough was essentially when I talked to a money coach for work. Mm-hmm. This was, I didn't think I needed one, but I sure did. Tell the story. This is a great story. So I was speaking with Barbara Stanny, and she is the author of many wonderful books about women and financial empowerment. And I love her. She's like, the OG, you know, in in women's financial health. And I was interviewing her for an article in Money Magazine and she and I got to talk about our personal lives a little bit and where I was. And her work was focused mostly on helping women become millionaires. And I wasn't there yet. And I was like, kinda to me, that was sort of like, oh, I'll never do that. You know, that's not who I am because those women aren't married, or they never see their kids or they're unhappy like i just in my mind i had already taken myself out of the race mm. and she said but don't you want more power when you get richer you become more powerful and i was like barbara you are not talking my love language like i don't want power ew <laughs> and she said okay let's unpack that because you have a curious relationship with this word power and i said well because again like i don't want the money because i want to dominate i don't want to rule i don't want to." Be forceful with my money. Like, I think that when you get to be that rich, what is left? Like, I have enough to cover my bases. Mm -hmm. I have enough. I feel very fulfilled. Like, I just, I feel like I have enough. Is that okay? Is that fair to say? She's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, it's not about making money to make the money. Like, don't just become a millionaire to become a millionaire. But I would ask this question of you, which is this. I disagree with that definition of power. I think that's one definition of power. I think power has many, many facets and use cases. So for example, the power to uplift, the power to heal, the power to support. Does that speak to you? I said, yeah, it does. You know, I want to be able to create generational wealth. I want to be able to invest in my community. I want to be able to be more charitable. Things that I can't do with as much generosity now because I am not Mm -hmm. a millionaire, And she said, all right, well, if that is important to you, then perhaps crossing the seven-figure threshold is something that you feel like you can and should do. And I said, yeah, that's true. But I still struggled with the fear. I said, but I don't want to do it if it's going to mean giving up all my time and all my relationships. She's like, that again is, does it have to be the way that you do it? Mm -hmm. Does everybody who makes money sacrifice all those things? And it's not to say that it's going to be easy. There will be trade-offs, but your work now as a woman who has come to terms with the fact that she would like to make more money, that it is not shameful, that it is something that can help her not just advance her family, but others. Your work now is to come up with a roadmap to do that while protecting the things that you want to protect. You're bringing your fear with you because mm-hmm. the fear wanted me to protect my time. It wanted me to protect my energy and my relationships. So. I thought about it, I said, Well, digital courses are not for <laughs> it's not the way because that's a lot of manpower that's a lot oh, yes. of like, I', a lot I of struggling with that you myself,
0: know. oh my goodness yeah. anybody
1: watching it's not easy, but I said, What's the lowest hanging fruit? you know what can I do immediately and it was raising my prices, try it. that takes no time. Ugh. It takes no sacrifice of relationships. It's a decision you make, and then you just let it ride. And I started making more money simply because I asked for it. I didn't invest in an assistant, which was a, a risk. I, you know, I had, but I calculated for it. I was like, well, I had been thinking about the assistant route for a while and I just couldn't justify it. But I said, okay, well, now that I know how much more I want to make, what I'm going to have to do to get there. Here is a lot of important work that this person can take on and I'm going to measure it. You know, I'm going to, we're going to do a trial. We're going to do it for six months. And if six months isn't fruitful, then we'll go, we'll part ways. But I, I wanted to build in some flexibility with that because again, I wanted to protect, I was afraid of investing too much and then going in over my head. Right. It worked out beautifully. And what it allowed me to do was to focus on those bigger, more lucrative business strategies, to not do all the sort of executive functioning work in my business, but to then like go out and network, create decks, strategize, think bigger. And within a couple of years, I had doubled my income. Wow. I love that fear got me there. You know, it was, I did it while I was scared, but I was never like, oh, I'm just gonna be fearless and just go and like make a course and do the thing. And no, I had to get to a place where I could make a plan that was specific to me, that was catered to me. And I have to include in that, not just the things that are gonna spark joy, but the things that I'm gonna be able to protect along the way. And the only way to identify those things is to get close to your fears.
0: That's right. And not everything in life sparks joy, right? That's not no. the purpose of life. No. You know, you talk a lot about the fear of uncertainty and, and I think that is such a deep underpinning fear for all of us. And it sort of like underpins all the other ones, right? Right. right. Including money. And your whole job is to answer people's questions they, and they want to know, is it going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? And, You can't tell them that. Mm -mm. How do we instill the spirit of, I don't know, calculated risk or or working through fear in people? And this is good for managers to know, without telling them that life is a bed of roses and you know for sure things are going to be okay because you don't.
1: Well, when people ask, is everything going to be okay? I think what. they really want to know, which is what they're not asking is, am I doing everything I can? Mm. That's what we want to feel like at the end of the day, right? Because I think we're all logical people to some extent. Like We know that there are just so many things that are out of our control, but we want to feel as though we're doing our best and we're leveraging the resources that we have. And is there something that I'm not thinking of? Is there something that I'm not being vigilant enough about? That's really what the questions are. And so in the end, even if things don't work out, they still kind of did because you arrived at this place feeling like you did everything you can and that's your best and that's success Yeah, really, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't work out the way you wanted, but when do things ever work out the way we want? We want to just arrive at a place where we feel like we feel whole. We feel whole. We feel like we did things with integrity. We did things with the best knowledge that we had. And sometimes there are holes there to fill. And that's what the fear is nudging you towards, to fill those holes, fill those gaps. And so when the fear of uncertainty comes around, the self inquiries that I recommend are, what are the resources that I can tap to feel more secure in this moment, which is ultimately what I wanna protect. I wanna protect my sense of security. It's mm-hmm. the opposite of feeling insecure. Yeah. So, and that's not just like money, right? Sometimes that's people. I lost my job in 2009.
0: Yeah, you, got, in the you recession. got laid off.
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about uncertainty. Even if you had a job during that time, you felt very uncertain because it was like walking on eggshells every day. The market was tumbling. Real estate was collapsing. Jobs were being shed. You thought you were next. And it was uncertain for me because I was also working in the media industry, which was consolidating. Even before that recession, it was already like on its way out in some ways, the traditional ways of getting paid and working. And so I thought, well, what do I do? I mean, is all that's left for me to like go back home and live with my parents until I figure things out. And I realized in that moment that while the world is uncertain and I can't control my employer, I can't go back and beg for my job, although I would have if I knew it would have worked. I realized there are things that are certain still that are highly resourceful and valuable, which is like my endless ambition, my Rolodex, my years of experience. I had just published a book. Mm -hmm. That's an asset, Mm -hmm. I can leverage that. And is it gonna work out for me overnight? No, but I need to just keep moving. And look, I went under the covers for at least a couple of weeks. Like I watched a lot of Bridget Jones Diary. I (laughs) ate a lot of dumplings and everyone should go through that phase, but opportunities don't come knocking on your door. Usually for most people, Mm -hmm. you have to go out there and find them and create them. And I did that with confidence once I realized the things that were certain in my life.
0: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If
1: you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast,
0: Building One. I think that you are someone who I looked up to. I think a lot of people really look up to. And you've created this really interesting, successful life for yourself. But one of the things you write about is that you always felt like an outsider. Mm -hmm. You don't move through this world, I think, as a person who's like, I belong, I fit in, I'm the greatest. Like, How has that early experience of being different and not feeling whole, like great in your skin, pushed you to get to this career Mm -hmm. place where you've really invented your own rules?
1: Yeah, I've had an early education in how to read rooms. <laughs> I was always the new girl in school. And I always went in with high hopes and thought I would come in and just immediately become the most popular girl. Cause that happened for some people. I started mm-hmm. high school in 10th grade at a new school in a new state. And it was myself and two other girls, same day. And the other two girls were blonde and blue eyed and beautiful and athletic. And were immediately beloved i just i was like in awe i was like how is this possible and my high school was a tough crowd you know it's like the clicks were there it was done like this is 10th grade we're not here to make new friends we have had these friends since we were in diapers and you know we have tables designated for everybody of every you know it was like mean girls and somehow these girls just like i don't know maybe they if i asked them they would say i would go home and cry every night and i didn't feel accepted but from my purview like it was a lot easier for them to get invitations to parties and you know get asked out and all the things that you hope for in high school is like a girl and a boy and so i uh yeah i was that outsider but gosh it all worked out i guess but i think that for me what it taught me early was that when you fear rejection it is really this rallying cry to go where you are loved yeah. that rejection is real people don't sometimes want you around your job is not to try to convince them that you're worthy your your job is to move on sometimes you know it's it's not to try to reverse the rejection it's to Move. And, you know, <laughs> I, I laugh about high school and how it was difficult. That was actually the easier chapter in my adolescence, middle school and elementary school, where I lived in Massachusetts, where I was really the odd one out because everybody in Massachusetts, in my city, in my town, were Catholic or, you know, blonde, Italian, Irish. Like, I remember it was third grade and it was where are you from day. And I just got up and told everybody I was Italian because I didn't want the distractions. I just, I just, it's you know, just I easier. just easier. I was like, you know, they're not going to, they're, I just, I could see the looks on their faces when my mother would pick me up at school and speak to me in Farsi, or she would begin speaking in her broken English and the ignorance. And it was just, it was cutting. And, oh, when you're eight, nine, I mean, I have a nine-year-old now. I know it's hard. It's not it's not their job right now to try to stick up Mm -mm. for an entire ethnicity (laughs) you just want to be asked to the birthday party just want to eat lunch with people right and so we moved to pennsylvania which was not my choice but i was so looking forward to it because i was like finally a fresh start it can't be as bad as it was in mass and yeah there's always challenges in in social settings as an adolescent, high school, is not easy for anybody, unless maybe you're like the homecoming queen, but I'm sure she's got problems. She has problems. She's got problems. I've seen all the movies. (laughs) I I wouldn't know from first, from experience, (laughs) but what was different in Pennsylvania was that I was finally in a school where being smart was considered cool. Mm. Being ambitious was encouraged and it was a smaller school so you had an opportunity to shine more and get closer to your teachers and maybe forge deeper relationships and there were people from all religions all races ethnicities it was it was more diverse let's just say and i remember i got there and people were giving me nicknames they thought my name was so cool which was not the coolest, you know, up until that point, I was, I've tried to change my name so many times until that point, I was pleasantly surprised. I got there and everybody was like, oh, hey, noosh, hey, Nushi," And I'm like, I don't know about that, but I will let you say it because it is, I think a term of endearment and it is like, I love it. And I got so confident there and, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, it was really a metaphor for like, when you are in a place where you aren't feeling accepted, sometimes you just got to move. And in that moment in my life, that wasn't something that I pursued proactively. My parents moved and I had to go with them. But it has been a reminder to me that whenever you're in an environment, at work, in your own personal life, in your church, in anywhere that you're feeling like this is getting hostile or this is not, I don't feel trusted. I don't feel accepted. I don't feel warmth. Your job is to... Change, not theirs, and not by changing to conform, but by changing by leaving.
0: That's right. Find the table of the people who want to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. Before we go, is there any word of wisdom or insight that you want to offer someone listening who needs to make a big transition in their life and is really scared to do it? Well, you're scared. I say, great (laughs)
1: sometimes there's no better place to be when you're scared it means it really matters like what you're feeling and what you're doing and what you're thinking about is important you're in the right place the right mindset now your job is to not let the fear override you you are the adult in the room you are the woman with the plan the man with the plan so when you are afraid it's okay to say, I'm afraid. So this must mean I have an opportunity here to explore. I need to either like learn more about this fear and where it came from, get to its truth, realize maybe it isn't still truthful mm-hmm. in where I am in my life today. Like we have, we have that privilege, you know? While being fearless is a privilege, it's also a privilege to look at the fear and examine it. Because from there, you will learn things that you may not have uncovered before, that you may not have focused on before. But those are the things, those are the nuggets, the wisdom that you need to go and make those high stakes choices. And also know that when you're afraid, you're not the only one. Well, that is true. Take comfort in that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maura.
0: That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn. Or you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.